The Bible reading this morning is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 9, from verse 1 to 17. You can find it in the Church Bible, page 1038. Church Bible, page 1038. Jesus sent out the twelve. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and, and to heal those who were ill. And he told them, Take nothing for your journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shit. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Now Herod, the trench heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared. And still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. When the apostle returned, they, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him and they withdraw by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowd learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Later in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. He replied, you give them something to eat. The answer, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said, to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looked up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. Then all it and we're satisfied. 
And when the disciple picked up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and were, that were left over. This is the word of the Lord. You may think that there is more than one sermon in that lot, and I agree. However, actually, from time to time, it is worth looking at longer passages in the Bible, and as it were, pulling back and looking at the big picture rather than going right down into all the detail. And that's broadly what I'm going to do today with a couple of exceptions. So as usual, I suggest that we seek the Lord's help in learning from that. So let's pray. Father, once again, we pray that you would help us to understand more about Jesus, to listen to his call to us, and to respond to that call. Amen. Over the last few weeks, we've been focusing on the power that Jesus displayed in the various events recorded in the second half of Luke chapter 8. And as you've just heard, this week we move on to chapter 9. And we start with something that is superficially a bit different. The ministry of the Twelve Apostles. And the the passage, as you heard, begins by telling us that Jesus called the twelve together and he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal those who were ill. And the results were dramatic. Moving on to verse 6, it says they set out. Uh, By the way, Mark tells us they went out two by two. They set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. In essence, uh, they were performing a ministry very similar to that which had been performed by Jesus himself. Uh, But there was only one of Jesus. He could only be in one place at one time. Whereas they, going out in their pairs, could cover six times as much ground. Six times two equals 12, if you hadn't noticed uh, that that point. Now, uh, incidentally, we don't know precisely the content of their preaching. But we are told that they proclaimed the good news and that Jesus said they were to proclaim the kingdom of God. And Mark tells us that they called on people to repent. It seems pretty clear that their message was exactly the same as the message that Jesus was proclaiming. Uh, This is Mark uh, 1, 14 and 15. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And that's what they were calling on the people to do. So what can we learn from all of this? Well, first of all, a couple of words of caution. Some people use this passage as a hook Uh, on which to hang teaching about the need for us as Christians to have regard to people's practical needs. Now, that's important. Let's be clear. We should do that. But, But it doesn't happen to be what this passage is about. The disciples weren't called upon by Jesus to go and just have attention to people's practical needs. They were called upon to go and proclaim the gospel 
and exercise miraculous powers uh, of, uh, to, to, to heal people. Other people suggest that this should be regarded as a model for all Christian ministry, that the church should in essence continue the ministry of Jesus in proclaiming the gospel and exercising powers of healing. That, however, is a a controversial view. Uh, Not everybody agrees that that is the proper way of viewing our ministry. And that's an important debate, by the way. But I'm not going to get into it today, because once again, it actually isn't the subject of this passage. We need to be very careful that we don't overgeneralize from narrative passages. That there is a danger that we as Christians are so keen to wring every ounce of learning out of every part of the Bible that we overgeneralize, and that's where some disputes uh, end up arising. That this passage isn't about the long-term ministry of the church. It's specifically talking about Jesus commissioning the apostles for a particular task and what happened when he did so. So, those are a couple of things to remember, but more importantly, what are the positive things we should take from this passage? Well, first of all, and actually balancing the last point that I've just made, we should note that this passage does Uh, 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 explain that Jesus commissions people and equips them for ministry. Now, of course, the work that he calls on each one of us to do may be very different from that which he called on his apostles to to do. But, But the Bible makes it clear that Jesus commissions and equips every one of us to serve him. That's really important. Uh, We've looked at it in some detail in the not-too-distant past, so I'm not going to repeat what's been said previously, but that's not because it's unimportant. It's a really crucial point, which this passage exemplifies. That's point one. Point two. Note that all the initiative was with Jesus. It was Jesus who gave the apostles the powers that they exercised. It was Jesus who gave the apostles authority to exercise those powers. It was Jesus who commissioned them, Jesus who instructed them to go out, Jesus who sent them out. The power and authority exercised by the apostles was entirely derivative. The things that they did were not demonstrations of their power, they were demonstrations of Jesus' power. And if you remember, realize that, you'll see that this isn't very different from what Luke was talking about in chapter 8. And then, did you notice the instructions that Jesus gave the apostles for the journey? They're quite interesting. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. It's sometimes suggested that those verses are a great example of the Gospels contradicting one another. Because if you were to go back to Mark chapter 6, you would discover that in his account... 
Mark says that Jesus said that the disciples were to take a staff. And not superficially, that looks like a straight contradiction. However, it is worth bearing in mind two important things, which at least suggest why that is not necessarily a contradiction. First of all, we should note that we don't have here a record of everything that Jesus said. I'm sure he'd said a huge amount more than the two sentences that are recorded here. In fact, one would imagine that there was quite a big conversation between him and uh, his disciples about what they were to do, how they were to go about their mission, etc. It could have taken a really quite a long time. And what we have here is the barest summary. Second, we don't necessarily have the precise words of Jesus here. You might find that surprising um, because in our Bibles here, it looks as though we're being told these are the very, very words. And that's because in English, there is a very clear distinction between indirect speech, where I simply say, um, oh, Richard said that X, Y, Z, where You give the gist of what somebody said, but there's no implication that you've got the exact words. And direct speech, which you put in inverted commas, where in England there's an expectation you're quoting precisely. That distinction did not exist in the ancient world. And specifically, in fact, in in New Testament Greek, there are no inverted commas. There was no convention that direct speech implied you were quoting precisely. And... Uh, therefore we should not draw the conclusion we have the precise words. We have his precise voice, uh, if you like Latin tags, ipsissima vox rather than ipsissima verba. We have his voice, but don't assume that each and every word was the words he used on on that occasion. Now put those things together. And you can imagine a situation in which the disciples were all crowded around and they were all talking and People are coming up with ideas. And of course, they'd have had with them their everyday kit, which they had when they were with Jesus, just trundling around generally. And that would have included, in those days, a staff. That's what people carried. Now, you can imagine one of the uh, apostles saying something like, if they were one of the particularly organized ones, we need more, we need some money, we need some bread, we need some staffs, we might break staffs, we need need some of that. And Jesus saying, stop. No money, no bread, no staffs. Go as you are. And thus it would be completely accurate to say that he allowed them to take their staffs, the ones they generally carried, but but actually he was telling them, no additional things, go as you are. Now, I'm not saying that what I've described is precisely what happened. What I am saying is there's no necessary contradiction here between Matthew and Mark, or for that matter, sorry, Luke and Mark, or for that matter, Matthew. Um, Incidentally, if you are one of those people who worries about alleged contradictions in the Gospels, please do come and speak to me afterwards, because there are a handful of things which explain the overwhelming majority of alleged contradictions. If you like, I could let you have something I wrote on this a few few years ago, which, which analyzes it. If that's not something that concerns you, that's fine. But if it is, please don't sit there and worry. Come and have a chat because it's very easily explained. Anyway, let's get back to this. So Jesus told them to go as they were. 
And he later, in a later instant, in Luke 22, he told them that he'd done that because he wanted them to learn that he provided for their needs when they were ministering on his behalf. He, he deliberately wanted them to have to trust him. And of course, we need to learn that lesson as well, don't we? Uh, we're called upon to serve Jesus, and we need to remember it's always him to whom we should look for the meeting of our needs, and he will do so. I should add, however, that once again we mustn't overgeneralize, because in Luke 22, when he reminds the disciples of this, he says to them that having learnt the lesson that they trust in him, he now has another instruction for them, which is that they should be, in that situation, prepared for what was about to happen. So we should be careful that we apply Jesus' teaching in the context uh, in which it was given. All right, final thing from this passage. No, just the first part of this passage. <laughs> You're not getting off that easily. Verse 5. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Do you know, Jesus was there gently pointing out to them they would face rejection. And he was saying that they should respond to that rejection with a symbolic act. In those days, if a Jew, at least a a very observant Jew, went to a foreign land, when they returned to the land of Israel, they would take off their sandals and shake the dust off them as a symbolic way of removing the impurity from themselves. But when that was done on leaving a Jewish village, and by the way, Matthew says the disciples were told only to go to Jewish villages, when that happened, it was a symbol of judgment, wasn't it? A symbol of condemnation. Jesus was effectively saying, if you reject my word, you are an outsider to the people of God. You are not part of the people of God. And and we need to remember that. Then, as now, all who repent and believe the good news of the kingdom, which was being preached by the apostles, are forgiven and accepted by God. That's the good news. But Jesus is also saying, if you do not respond, then you are not part of the people of God. We need to move on. It's clear from Matthew's gospel that Jesus' teachers, sorry, the apostles' teaching, resulted in Jesus becoming much better known around Galilee. And word of him reached Herod the Tetrarch. By the way, King Herod the Great, the chap who was the king at the time of Jesus' birth, had died shortly thereafter. Herod the Tetrarch, we're hearing about here, is one of his sons. There are, incidentally, no fewer than six Herods mentioned in the New Testament, so don't be surprised if you get confused. This is Herod the Tetrarch, who ruled over Galilee and Perea around the time uh, of Jesus' ministry. And we learn that he was perplexed. Verse 7. And he was perplexed because some were saying that John, that's John the Baptist, Uh, had been raised from the dead. 
Others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him, tried to see Jesus. Now, it's obviously interesting to learn about what the ruler of the area was thinking about Jesus. But I'm sure that's not the reason why Luke recorded it here. He wasn't recording this to satisfy our idle curiosity. No, as has been pointed out in previous weeks, one of Luke's key themes in these chapters is addressing the question, who is Jesus? And he is explaining the various theories that were being put forward by people. Back in the middle of uh, chapter 8, we learned that after Jesus had stilled the storm, the uh, disciples were filled with uh, fear and amazement, and they asked, who is this? And and then the demon-possessed man addressed Jesus as the son of the Most High God. And now we learn that some people were suggesting Jesus was Elijah, who, of course, was a prophet in the Old Testament who had disappeared, who had been translated into heaven, or one of the other prophets who had died and had come back to life. And some, most troublingly for Herod's conscience, were suggesting it was John the Baptist who had come back to life. Now, we'll return to that question, who is Jesus, in a moment. But before then, we need to look at the final part of this passage, which is Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. If you look at verse 10, we're told that when the apostles returned from their mission, they reported to Jesus what they'd done. Then he took them with him and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. Uh, There's more to that than meets the eye. Because you see, Matthew tells us that Jesus decided to go to Bethsaida when he heard that Herod was interested in him. You see, particularly bearing in mind that Herod had executed John the Baptist, Herod's interest in Jesus was not necessarily good news. And so Jesus went to Bethsaida outside Herod's jurisdiction. It was in the jurisdiction of his brother, Philip. And so for the time being, he put himself out of harm's way, got out of the way of Herod, deliberately avoided him. Furthermore, Bethsaida, as we heard in our passage, was quite a remote place, and as a result, it offered the disciples the opportunity to recharge their batteries after their mission. However, as we heard, the crowds soon caught up with Jesus and demanded his attention. I wonder how you would have reacted had you been Jesus in that situation. I wish I could say that I would have reacted well, but I know how I would have reacted. I would have been frustrated and irritated, and I would have tried to get rid of them. Um, But Jesus didn't, did he? Take a look at verse 11. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. As Sam pointed out last week, Jesus always welcomes anyone who is seeking after him. 
he, he, he ministered to them. He taught them. He, he, he doubtless also called on them to repent, because that's what we hear he did. He, and, and he healed those who needed healing, despite the fact that probably he too was tired. And of course, we all know what happened next, don't we? Faced with a, a, an increasingly tired and hungry crowd, and having only two loaves and five fishes, Jesus fed 5,000 men and unnumbered women and children, and at the end of it all, had 12 baskets full of leftovers to gather up. It was a truly amazing miracle, and so amazed the disciples that it's recorded in all four Gospels. In fact, by the way, it is the only miracle described in all four Gospels. However, over the last 200, 250 years, there have been numerous attempts to explain away what happened. The first theory, incidentally, is that when Jesus blessed the bread and the fishes, he shamed a lot of people in the crowd into admitting that they had food which they hadn't previously revealed, and they all shared it around so there was enough to, for everyone to eat. A second theory is that the wealthy women who were part of Jesus' entourage, and we know there were a number of wealthy women who uh, supplied their needs, that they went and they bought some food. From where? I have no idea, but, but that's, the, that's the theory. Uh, another theory is that what Jesus did is he took a minute morsel of the bread and gave a morsel to everybody so that they were all symbolically fed. A further theory is that Jesus hypnotised the crowd. Uh, By the way, these are theories that are seriously put forward in books you can find out there. He hypnotised the crowd, and as a result, they thought they'd been fed, but they hadn't been. Now, the problem with all these theories is they lack a shred of evidence to support them. Um, The theologian Van der Loos said this uh, um, 50 years ago, it is without doubt a fascinating business to investigate how human ingenuity reaches new heights in its efforts to eliminate the supernatural from the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And if you just read the populist books out there, you'll realise that that is true. Look, we can, of course, reject what the Bible says. We can say that the four gospel writers made it all up. But their unanimous testimony is that Jesus performed a truly astonishing miracle. And although Luke doesn't mention it, the Apostle John in his gospel tells us it gave rise to yet another theory about who Jesus was. The theory that he was the prophet. In other words, the great successor to Moses promised in the Old Testament. You see, Luke hasn't actually moved away from his great subject of who Jesus is. He's told us about all of these things, these these various acts of Jesus, precisely because 
they point to the answer to the question, who is Jesus? Think, think about it for a moment. Jesus spoke to the wind and the waves and instantly the storm was stilled. Who controls nature? Jesus exercised power over demons. Who has such power? Jesus instantly healed a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. Who can do that? Jesus gave life to a dead woman. Who is the giver of life? Jesus created enough food to feed 5,000 men and unnumbered women and children. Who's the creator? Is it Elijah? Or one of the prophets from long ago come back to life? Or John the Baptist come life to back to life? Or even the prophet, the successor to Moses? No. You see, Luke is inviting us to reflect on the fact that no ordinary man can do this kind of thing. He's inviting us to reflect on the fact that the demon-possessed man got it right. Jesus is the son of the most high God. In fact, he's the most high God himself. God incarnate. God come to earth. That's why the kingdom of God has come near. But we're back to that basic teaching of Jesus himself and of the apostles on their mission. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That was Jesus' message. That was the message of the apostles as they went through those Jewish villages in Galilee 2,000 years ago. And that's been the message to us all ever since, including us today. And we need to respond to that and keep responding to it. Amen.